is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. L.A. County public health officials are at the center of controversy again over mask rules. They've issued a new order that face coverings are required in all public transit and at airports. We'll go in-depth as we ask the public health director why the county has different guidelines from both the state and the feds. GOP House Leader Kevin McCarthy in hot water over audio in which he said he was going to ask Donald Trump to resign over the Capitol riot. And we'll gauge the political impact both nationally and for the midterm elections right here in California. We'll go to Ukraine, talk with the father of three sons who says he will never leave however bad the war gets. Uh, New UCLA research out on what might trigger long-haul COVID for some patients. And we mark Earth Day by focusing on efforts to improve the environment through Odyssey's One Thing initiative. But we start with the latest L.A. County order on COVID, the masking for the transit hubs. And when you're on the buses and trains with us is a county director of public health, Dr. Barbara Ferrer. Doctor, thanks for being back on the show. So let's start with the why. Why are we the only ones doing this, at least around here? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure I can answer and, and speak to what other, you know, health departments are, are looking at or thinking about. Um, I, I know that I'm uh, very driven by the science, and I'm also very attentive to CDC's assessment that at this time requiring masking in the indoor transportation corridor remains essential for protecting the public's health. You know, I don't, I don't really uh, see uh, how we substitute um, a decision by by a federal judge for the decisions and the expertise of our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You know, all for the last two years, we've all been blessed uh, with having a national organization that really pays attention to protecting the public health. And, you know, we're going to continue to align uh, as much as possible with the Centers for Disease Control. And, you know, they have not changed, uh, you know, their uh, position here. So, so but he, here's where you, you say you go by the by the science. So let's drill down a little bit in, into that, okay? Because here's where I think people get kind of confused. They say, okay, they, they, they may buy the notion that uh, if you're in a crowded place, like an airport, with transmission rates clearly on the upswing, that it's a good idea probably to wear a mask. But then those people say, but wait a minute. So I could go to a large restaurant, perhaps with 100 people, all eating for an hour, hour and a half, in close proximity to one another in L.A. County with masks off, and that's okay, but I then jump into a, a Uber. Now I have to wear a mask. Now I go into the airport, still have to wear a mask. Now I go on the plane, and I don't have to wear a mask. So where's the science that differentiates all that? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question. And, you know, I, I would start with one principle that, that I think is, is probably helpful. It's certainly helpful for me to keep in mind, which is none of our strategies are perfect. You know, vaccinations and boosters aren't perfect. Masking isn't perfect. Distancing isn't perfect. Um, you know, so, so really it's a layering approach. And the, the more risks that there are, and in, in, especially in indoor settings, the more layers you want to, uh, you know, you want to have uh, in place or you want to be able to use those tools. Um, so, you know, uh, and the unfortunate thing is, you know, on transportation now we're disadvantaged because we don't have federal consistency. You know, up till now it's been consistent. The transit hubs, you know, all modes of public transit, we were all wearing our masks. 
these are places where people are in close contact with others, often for longer periods of time. They're often crowded. Forgive me to, for for, for uh, hopping on this, but but I, I but but I still I, I'm still waiting for the answer. That's what he does. Uh, yeah, he harps. That's what I do. I harp. But but I am still waiting for the answer to that question because it is the question that people want to have an answer to. Uh, they accept, let's say, for the sake of argument, the science that says high transmission rates, higher transmission rates anyway, uh, we should wear a mask in indoor settings like an airport. But I, I again ask you, what is the difference then? Why not have a policy as we had before that says if the transmission, uh, transmission rate is high enough now that one should and needs to wear a mask while going through an airport setting, then one should wear a mask in a movie theater that's crowded. One needs to wear a mask in a restaurant in between bites. I think that's the way it used to work. Why not that? Because, I, I mean, I think, we're, I think we're trying to be strategic about where the requirements uh, are, are more essential and where strong recommendations uh, may be adequate. I mean, again, our position is that when you're indoors in these settings that you've all just listed, um, it makes a lot of sense to keep that well-fitting, high-filtration mask on. And we have not changed our position on that at all. I think you're right to note that all settings uh, are not treated equally in terms of where you have requirements and where you have recommendations a strong recommendation. I think that, in fact, reflects um, sort of our understanding that as we have developed more tools, there are places where uh, there is slightly less risk for slightly less people uh, than in other settings. I mean, our transportation hubs are places where that have thousands and thousands of people intermingling from all over the country every day, from all over the world. You know, I, I think it, it would be easiest uh, for it to be completely consistent and to not change over time. I think that's not realistic, given the unpredictable nature of the virus. Well, speaking of time, the CDC very well could have, in a, in a different reality, ended this in a couple of weeks because that was to yeah. the point where they had extended it to. So how long does ours go? Ours goes until the CDC determines that it's no longer necessary or... Uh, we reach a level of moderate transmission or 30 days have passed, and which point with any of those conditions, uh, whichever happens first, we'll do a reassessment. Dr. Ferrer, thank, thank you. you so much. Okay, thank you. It's the audio that is the talk of Washington. House Leader Kevin McCarthy on a call with Republican colleague Liz Cheney, this in the wake of the Capitol riot. The sound leaked to the New York Times with McCarthy talking about a motion to impeach Trump. I think this will pass. And it would be my recommendation you should be done. I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it, but I don't know. Robert Costa, CBS News chief campaigns and elections correspondent, is with us now. Robert, thanks for being with us. Do we know, does anyone know, what ended up uh, after that conversation that McCarthy had with Liz Cheney? Do we know if he ever put in that call to Donald Trump? Kevin McCarthy, based on uh, our reporting at CBS News, did engage with then-President Trump after that call was made. But ultimately, both McCarthy and McConnell in the Senate, they walked back from any kind of push to have Trump resign or even have a discussion about it. Uh, what you saw in, uh, in our book, Peril, that I wrote with Bob Woodward, 
is that McCarthy was someone who ultimately decided by late January, even if he was frustrated with Trump, he wanted Trump to stay in the party to be a political force. So what are we hearing today after all this from other Republicans? And uh, who are the ones that are talking and, and who's staying quiet? It's pretty quiet uh, across the Republican Party today. Uh, but there's some voices of support for McCarthy. This is someone who is in line to be the next Speaker of the House should the Republicans win the majority this November. And based on our reporting, uh, Trump and McCarthy spoke by phone in recent hours since the story broke. And Trump's not prepared to break with McCarthy in any way. Because when you listen to the audio, you see him exploring the idea of talking about resignation with Trump, but not pushing for it. And a Trump ally tells me that that nuance really protects McCarthy in Trump's eye. You know, uh, Mike and I, Robert, were talking about this during the break. How do politicians manage to pull this off, that they say one thing that they know is apparently not true, uh, and then they risk having a revelation, in this case, a recording that comes out? just hope there's not a tape somewhere. And and it clearly shows that what he said he didn't do, he did do. How do they do it? This is a classic Washington. Uh, Unfortunately, as a reporter, I am navigating these churning waters of truth and lies every day. And you have to be careful as you sail your own boat, shall we say, uh, because these politicians, they really cling to the gray matter at times of statements to see if there's any kind of wiggle room, if something's not fully definitive in their view, even if it's definitive in the public's view or in a reporter's view. And, and they look for gaps sometimes or vague statements to try to coast along. You mentioned your book and you've written them. You've had big reveals in them. But when you're also a reporter for a newspaper at the same time, what goes in whether to, to hold on to this kind of thing for a book or, or release it to the paper and not wait on it? Because I'm sure you see the tweets, people going, well, these guys just wanted to make money on their book. And then they had this the whole time. And why didn't we hear this six months ago? Well, when I did, just speaking for myself, when I did the book Peril with Bob Woodward, I went on full leave unpaid from the Washington Post. Uh, I, I did the entire book on unpaid leave, and I resigned from MSNBC and from PBS at the time to focus solely on the book. So that was my approach. Others have different approaches. Well, although, Mike, I mean, I, I get what you're saying about, uh, so in your mind you weren't in a, in a conflict, but I, I understand Mike's point, too, that on something as significant as as this, uh, the, the insurrection uh, attempt anyway in January and uh, the turbulent presidency of Donald Trump, uh, what is the, the argument in your mind for keeping material such as this? And I know this wasn't your tape with McCarthy, but what is the argument in favor of withholding it until publication of a book? This is a, an instance that I'm not directly involved in, so I'm hesitant no, to no, have no. any opinion on But I think when you look at any kind of reporting, there is a, a place for long-form investigative reporting that either ends up in a newspaper or ends up in a book. Uh, at, at times, I learned that lesson again and again doing the book, for example. People would say, if, if, I, if you told me something today and said that I know that this person, uh, let's say, stole this money, I, if, and it seemed very relevant, right? I could go tweet it in 10 seconds. Uh, X person tells me why. But if I spent two or three weeks on it or maybe two to three months on it, I would find not only did they steal this, but they stole something else. And there's a recording of that. (laughs) And there's a document. You found the getaway driver. Yeah. Yeah. And things take people don't like to hear it. But real investigative reporting takes time. 
But on this particular situation, I'll let Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns speak for themselves. Is McCarty becoming speaker in danger because of all this, do you think? Or if, you know, the reporting today that, that President Trump doesn't doesn't seem too angry, then you know what? The road's clear. That's right. It, it, Trump's going to set the pace here. Pay attention to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, Congressman Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Those three, that trio are widely considered uh, rivals to the throne, shall we say, in House Republican politics. Uh, so far, pretty quiet among all three of them as they look at McCarthy because they see Trump's not rebelling against McCarthy. And a lot of the Republicans inside the House tell me privately, look, we may not love Kevin McCarthy. Some of them may love him, but a lot of them just have a muted view on him. But they see power on the horizon. They don't want to rupture that at this point. Robert Costa, CBS News chief campaigns and elections correspondent. Still to come, latest research on what may trigger long COVID in some people. And looking ahead to Record Store Day, it's Saturday, so you speak to one of the co-owners of Amoeba Music in Hollywood. Right now, it should be an interesting speech. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, due to address the state GOP convention in Anaheim uh, tomorrow night. With that audio out, in which, as we said in our last segment, he talked about asking Donald Trump to resign in the wake of January 6th. With us is California Republican strategist Sean Walsh. Sean, uh, nice to talk to you again. So uh, as Mike and I were were pointing out in our last segment, so here, here you have a politician who the reporting comes out first that says he said something uh, to Liz Cheney about calling Donald Trump and and suggesting or suggesting or asking that he resign. He then comes out and says, no, that never happened. Didn't say that. Then the audio comes out. Clearly, he did. When he speaks tomorrow night to fellow Republicans, how do they know he's telling the truth about anything? Well, I, you know, politics 101, government 101 is get your story straight and get it out with, you know, all the facts and you repeat it over and over and over again and you don't deviate. And the bottom line is you can have a problem. You could say something. But once you, it's the, always the thing, the cover-up's worse than the crime. So I think he made a fundamental political mistake in doing that. I think he's got to fix it tomorrow night, make his statement, lay it out there and not deviate and better make sure all the facts are absolutely rock solid. How does he fix it? Because it, it seems like, you know, he said exactly what Liz Cheney's been saying and she got all the punishment and she got tossed out of leadership. But uh, here he is and we'll have to see what the consequences are, if any. Well, in a strange sort of way, uh, it's messy, but it can have some positive benefits with uh, moderate Republican women to actually hear those words saying, wow, he did think that Trump was out of line and out of control. And, and the truth of the matter is, when someone sends people into your house and smashes up your living room and your, trashes your backyard, you expect people to be pretty angry. And so I think that's a natural, normal response, and a lot of Republicans will respond to it. I think your previous analyst from CBS politics was spot on. As long as uh, his rivals for the speakership are pretty quiet and as long as the rest of the party stays in line, it's not an issue. This is an internal Republican Party issue. And the bottom line is Republicans see and can smell victory in 2022 and they do not want to deviate from that path. How do you think uh, McCarthy's constituents uh, in his congressional district are taking this or should take should they take it in any particular way? Uh, his congressional district is not going to be a problem at all. Um, he is from the Bakersfield area. It's a fairly conservative Republican area. And so I don't think his constituents will blink two eyes. Uh, 
The issue is, will Republican donors have a problem that are funding some of these election races? I don't think they'll have much of a problem. I just think he needs to clean up his mess uh, in the speech tomorrow night, stick to that line and move forward. Now, I'm just talking real politics here, guys. Uh, As long as the Republicans don't get out of line, we'll brush off any criticisms that come from the Democrats. Well, does he try to thread the needle here for the moderates who would have liked this? Or does he just throw himself to the MAGA crowd and say, I'm so sorry? Uh, Because if he backpedaled before and the story has changed, it's because he was afraid of them, was he not? I think the recording does what the moderates would actually want to see. You know, the only potential problem I could see here, and it's a problem of his own making, is if the January 6th commission decides that they want to bring him in and question him uh, about what happened. And if he wasn't truthful on this, what else is he not truthful about? And that's a whole constitutional issue in and of itself. Does Congress have the ability to subpoena its own members and require them to go in and testify? So if we got into a food fight in that regard, that could be very ugly and very problematic for Mr. McCarthy. So um, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I play one on TV, as they say, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I do think that could be his real problem if he has one. I, I have to still ask you this, Sean. I mean, how did Paul, I mean, I presume, I don't know uh, Kevin McCarthy on a personal level. I, I presume he, he he's fairly bright guy. How do bright people and presumably bright politicians do such dumb things? Well, I don't know. It's the uh, is it like a virus that they catch or what is it? it you know, it's, it's almost like a Pavlovian years. reaction or you're about to get into a car accident. <laughs> you tense up and you do the absolutely the wrong thing that hurts yourself more. <laughs> you can explain your way out of DM or anything. But, you know, if you're a former spokesman or a spokesman like I am, you can explain the problem. <laughs> what you can't do is clean up the mess and the investigations and the cover up. And that that's just politics one on one. And it's it's sad to see it happens with both parties over. Not sad, but interesting and yeah. amusing that it happens over and over again. California Republican strategist uh, Sean Walsh. We've been talking to people in Ukraine almost every day here, getting a sense of what life is like for them as this war continues. With us now is Alex. Uh, He got out of his apartment just before it was hit by a Russian attack and has been uh, chronicling his time with his new baby born just a couple weeks before the war broke out. Uh, Alex, thank you for being with us. Um, Where were you? Where are you now? And and how is everybody doing? Um, Thank you for having me. I was in Irpin uh, on the first day of war. You know, we left a couple of days after the war started, and then several days later, the this place was occupied by the Russian uh, troops. And in fact, several of my neighbors who tried to evacuate later were shot dead in their cars. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I'm in a safe place, um, well, as, as safe as it can be in, in Ukraine, uh, in the center of Ukraine, uh, but uh, we, are not, we are not safe as a country in general. But you're 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 with a a two week old, is that right? Well, now he's two months old. Oh, two months. You know, most okay. His, yeah, yeah. Most of his life has been in the war. What oh. what is it? I mean, what is it like to have an infant with you going through all of this? Well, this is my third son, and of course, I would have never, you know, uh, expected that my my newborn would live in a play in a live in a life like this in a world like this yeah well uh, i i really well i really feel like it's uh, you know i should have uh, looked uh, on the internet for things about baby now i'm looking <laughs> on the internet for, for for things about war 
about what the military stuff is all about. You know, I pay most of my attention to my volunteer work, uh, to most of my attention to all those atrocities that happened in Bucha, not to the little baby. Yeah, this is supposed to be like the happiest time. Yeah, yeah. Alex, you, you are, all right, so you have a two-month-old, uh, right, a little bit more. And how old are the other kids? 25 and 17. 25 and 17, okay. How are they dealing with all this? Are you all together? Well, actually, they are luckily outside of the country. They are in France, but they support me, and they go to the meetings in Paris. They support the country. They do everything that they can do. And you were mentioning your volunteer work. What is that consisting of? Give, give us kind of a, a day-to-day of what things are, are like for you right now. Well, actually, I have three, three types of activities. First is uh, I have a volunteer team of about 20 people who help the most needy ones in uh, Kiev bomb shelters and around Kiev, especially on the deoccupied territories in the north of Kiev. Uh, you know, there's all, all babushkas who are staying in the villages with basically nothing. They have not, no bread, no flour, no sugar, nothing. They just have potatoes and carrots that they uh, plant in their own garden. So the, the guys, uh, the brave guys go and deliver all this necessary stuff to them. Second uh, 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 direction of activities is I'm talking to wherever possible to news agencies, delivering the message what it is all about here. Talk to French, Israel, South African, American, Canadian media, British media. And the third one is I'm helping the international lawyers to collect evidences and testimonies from the victims of the atrocities so that we can go to court with them. Uh, you know, the the thinking now, at least what we're hearing uh, here in the States, is that uh, this could end uh, with uh, Russia having control of a large chunk of, of southeastern Ukraine. Uh, and then the rest of the country, places like where you are, uh, would be on its own, but also with a loss of its industrial heartland in the east. Do you think that that is a likely outcome? This is likely, but this is not the end. We all know that uh, Russia's or Putin's goal is to erase Ukraine as a nation, to kill freedom here. That's his threat. He's afraid of this threat. He doesn't want freedom in any surrounding countries around him. He wants to kill us all. And even if he takes that, he will not stop. So we got to stop him and we will fight to the end. Alex there. Alex, thank you so much for for speaking to us. He was in Irpine, got out a little bit safer now, relatively, with a two-month-old. Our best to you and, and to the little one. There are some new clues about what may lead to long-haul COVID, at least for some patients. It comes from new research at UCLA. Senior study author Dr. Otto Yang is with us. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So is this a surprising finding? It is surprising. It is uh, the opposite of what many scientists are thinking is a cause of long COVID. Okay, so we thought the cause, or they thought the cause, right, was a hyperactive immune system, like inflammation that, that definitely continues past your, your usual bout with COVID, and, and you found maybe the opposite? Right, yeah. So with, with COVID, a lot of the problems are caused by the immune system being hyperactive during the acute infection, and so it made sense to think that maybe these symptoms were because it didn't completely turn off after the acute infection. But what we found 
suggest that another possibility is that there was an um, an over rebound of turning it off too much, so that the, that the immune system is actually not active enough. So does that suggest? I would think it would a, a different course of treatment. It possibly does. So, you know, this is a very preliminary study with only a small number of people, so it needs to be confirmed. But if if it is confirmed, it would suggest that perhaps things need to be given to, in, in fact, stimulate the immune system and, and wake it up a bit. How did you figure this out? Yes, it, it was a complete surprise. So we were treating people with an antibody that blocks a receptor called CCR5, which is involved with activated immune system. And the thought was the original hypothesis that we mentioned, which is that the immune system was too active. So we thought that we might tune it down with this antibody. Um, but in fact, there were two surprises. Uh, one was that the people that got better tended to be the ones that started off with low CCR5, so with actually um, lower immune activity. And the second surprise was that the antibody, instead of turning down the immune system seemed to turn it up a bit. And that might be that because even though it was blocking CCR5, that receptor, it, it was actually stabilizing its its expression on the cell surface and that uh, that helped other immune receptors also become more stable. You mentioned uh, before that this might suggest uh, the possibility of a treatment where you would have to stimulate as opposed to suppressing, right, the immune system. Uh, I think most people, even if they're not physicians, know that there are all kinds of drugs, right, that can uh, dampen uh, the immune system, uh, cortisone, that you know, things like that, prednisone. Uh, what's available to stimulate, I mean, vaccines, I guess, would stimulate the immune response, but what kind of therapeutics are available, if any, to stimulate somebody uh, who has COVID and have their immune system ramp up? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, most of the time, we're, we're spending our effort trying to dampen the immune system because of things like autoimmune diseases or organ transplantation, where the immune system is doing things we don't want, or allergies. Um, we don't have a lot of things in our armamentarium to to stimulate the immune system, and that's an area that um, that is is needs to be looked at. Um, you know, this antibody did seem to, in a way, stimulate the immune system, so that's something that possibly will be looked at more. If this rebound effect was was too much, right? You went all the way up with COVID, then you came way too far down, and now you're suppressed. How does that look for these people and the way they experience it? Is it they feel so run down and tired for that reason, or they're always catching some kind of bug, and that's why they feel that way, or they didn't clear all the original COVID infection? Yes, that's a good point. Uh, the long COVID is probably not one single entity, and so... Um, there may be people that feel bad for many, many reasons, uh, and there may be different, many different mechanisms for why people feel bad afterwards. Some of it may just be organ tissue damage from the infection itself and have nothing to do with the immune system. Some of it may be immune hyperactivity. Uh, in this case, uh, if, the, if this is true from what we saw, um, it may be because the people are susceptible to low-grade infections of various sorts. And there has has been some suggestion that long COVID, some people with long COVID have reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, the virus that causes uh, mono. You know, if there's one common theme, doctor, that has run through this, at least on, on this uh, program where we've been dealing, uh, of course, with uh, uh, all things pandemic for more than two years now, is... How many experts say the same thing, how surprised they are 
about all the different ways the coronavirus seems to to damage uh, the human body. And I guess my question is, is it because it's it's just new and so everyone is is learning or is there something very specifically unique about this particular virus that is different from from most others? I think more of it is that it's just new and it's sparked a level of interest and investigation that that uh, hasn't been, you know, hasn't been done until recently. Um, you know, when HIV hit the scene, also, it was kind of the same. We discovered all sorts of new things and it, it seemed uh, really unique. But now we know that a lot of the things that HIV does are not that unique. So I think it's kind of more of that phenomenon that that, that the interest and the intense focus uncovered things. Uh, but, you know, this this virus probably is not super different from other viruses. The common cold coronaviruses, for example, you know, cause reinfections all the time. And, and so we kind of have, there's been a lot of emphasis on how unique that is about this virus, but it's not. It's yeah, cousins I, cause I, I reinfections. Gonna, yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, and, and that thought has occurred to us throughout doing these, these programs. If, if you take the common cold, is it just that there's so little interest in people studying it that we don't really know the myriad ways that the common cold can inflict damage? Yes, exactly. It's that word common that throws us off, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's common. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. don't worry about it. All right. Uh, Dr. Otto Yang at uh, UCLA. Uh, doctor, thanks for talking to us. Well, if you, if you look on your calendar, it's likely to say, because it doesn't mind, it says it's Earth Day. And a lot of people go, okay, it's Earth Day, and then they go about their business. They should do something. They should do something. So we're with us now to talk about that is Jamie Field. She is Odyssey's Director of Sustainability, and she uh, is joining us now. Thanks for being with us, uh, Jamie. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So like I just said, I mean, a lot of people, I'm looking at my, my iPhone, it says Earth Day, and I have to admit, like a lot of people, I go, okay, it's Earth Day, and then there's so many other things to think about. But that's not a good approach, is it? It is not. But you should be thinking about the Earth every day, but particularly today. So how can people be a little bit better at this? I mean, the stations from all over the country that we have, I mean, we've got people out right now, actually, that are um, harvesting some 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 things and, and taking them to a food bank and a community place. And then good. they're planting some more. Okay. I saw Philadelphia was uh, doing some brush clearance. So what have people been doing? What were you doing today? Sure. I actually just got back from Fairmont Park, which is in Philadelphia. And we had a great turnout and uh, boy, we were mulching and weeding and cleaning up the park. Um, we have events going on where all of our Odyssey stations are. So in 47 markets. Uh, so you had folks in Las Vegas out in the desert. And, you know, I know people in California were cleaning up the beaches uh, in Chicago with a river. Um, think about New Orleans. They were recycling beads from Mardi Gras. Um, so a variety of projects. But yes, we have folks from all of our markets out there today helping the environment. So why do you think uh, some companies just don't do it? I, I mean, it, it does sound like a good idea, and I'm not just saying that because it's the company that I work for, but it does sound like a good idea, Jamie. Why, why don't a lot of uh, companies, why, don't, why doesn't every company do this? Uh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I, I think the environment is such a strong part of our culture at Odyssey and has been for so many years that, you know, it's just very much part of how we think of ourselves. And that's not necessarily true at other companies, right? So they don't have that sort of built in. 
Um, I think there's some companies that do give lip service today, um, but you know, we try and do things throughout the year of thinking about the environment. So let's say people are out there and they work in some place that just kind of posts a photo and they say, hell, happy Earth Day. Here's some uh, greenery. Right. But they want right. something more to happen. So so give me the elevator pitch that they can take to their boss and say, hey, get, let's get let's get moving on this. Sure. Well, first of all, I just think it's great all being together, like out there doing something good. You know, that feels good. And um, particularly after these last couple of years with COVID and people, you know, some people working remotely and we're back, you know, much stronger now at the offices. But it just feels really good to be out there with your fellow workers, colleagues doing something, you know, more important than yourself. Right. So I think just building community to start with is a very good reason to be doing this. But obviously um, you do it because you, you care about your community and you care about the environment in your community and you want to, you know, make it better. Do you remember, Jamie, for just your, your own uh, thinking, when it kind of dawned on you that, uh, and I'm not talk, talking about the company, I'm talking just about you, when you decided that this is something that you wanted to do and this was something that you needed to do? Um, so I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was a while ago. Um, I think it, I want to say it was from my late 20s, early 30s, and um, I, I guess I was blissfully naive growing up um, about our earth, but started becoming much more aware, reading a lot more about it, and, you know, t- to be honest, getting more distressed about it. And um, I think it was in those years I just started thinking, spending more time about it, you know, contributing time and you know, money to organizations that do help. So, yeah, it's been a while. If people have listened for any length of time, they have heard something that goes, what's your one thing? And <laughs> exactly. it's when, when people share, you know, the one thing they're doing to, to try and help out. So, uh, Jamie, what is your one thing? Oh, I try and do one thing every day. One thing's plural. But um, I'd say I have a bunch of one things. Uh, okay, so I only drink, you know, water from the tap. And that water is always in, if it's on a glass at home, but if I'm on the go, it's in a reusable bottle. So I never would use, you know, a plastic throwaway water bottle. Um, I only do our laundry with cold water. Um, I would never use hot water. You know, I do things like I turn my water off when I'm brushing my teeth. I take quicker showers. Um, we drive electric cars or prefer, preferably walking and biking. So I don't know. There's a, you you know, know, I could go on and on. I, I was listening <laughs> when you said you only drink tap water. I'm thinking for people in Beverly Hills, that's a hard sell. <laughs> yeah. well, let me, by the way, let me say I drink wine too. But when yeah. I'm talking about water, I only drink tap water. <laughs> Very good. All right. Jamie Field, the Odyssey Director of Sustainability. Jamie, thank you. And shout out to the LA team. Good, Grow Good Gardens. That's where they're at. Grow Good Gardens. It's an urban farm in East L.A., Uh, harvesting, tilling, moving the irrigation lines, and then planting new stuff out there. Saturday is a day to celebrate vinyl. It is record store day, and one of the businesses participating is Amoeba Music that's in Hollywood. They actually just moved uh, to a new location about uh, a little more than a year ago. With us now is co-owner Jim Henderson. Thanks for being with us. So uh, record store day, why? Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, Why not? Uh, you know, everybody has grown up in some form or another going to record stores uh, for the longest time and kind of embracing that culture. And, and I think getting back into uh, being around people and being around an exciting event, is, it's, it's the perfect time for, uh, for something like Record Store Day. This is the 15th year of it, and uh, it's been celebrating record culture um, kind of in the best way you can by putting out great new releases and 
bringing everybody to the stores and uh, having a good time together. What are some of the uh, What are some of the things we're getting this year in terms of the uh, you know special record store day stuff? Lots of uh, albums coming out, limited colors or uh, you know multiple LP pressings. There's uh, stuff from you know Blondie and Nick Cave Live and uh, old unreleased Mariah Carey stuff that haven't been out on vinyl yet. There's uh, cool soundtracks that haven't surfaced in, in decades, like Blue Velvet, uh, great punk stuff like The Wipers or some Lou Reed demos. I mean, there's just a little bit of everything, Childish Gambino. You know, Jim, uh, I, I, stuff. I, I guess I've always understood why older people uh, would be attracted to vinyl, because they remember the days uh, when that's really what it was, yes. right, were, were records. What's the attraction to younger people? Because they're buying vinyl too, right? Yeah, and, and more than ever. Um, I, I think, I mean, there's so many different facets of it, but one that uh, I hear about a lot in interacting with the with folks in the store, that so many of the younger generation have kind of lived an entire existence of experiencing things through their phone or through, you know, digital means, and kind of coming back and embracing something different and, and frankly, better uh, in this LP format, it's it's really opened some eyeballs and, and has a much better sonic experience, too. So um, I think people love to interact with the pieces. They're, they're attractive. The artwork is kind of bigger and bolder. You have the great liner notes on the inside. I mean, it's just a whole experience that you just don't get having, having a digital experience. What do you think the, the, the turning point is? I mean, because plenty of people hear that, oh, it sounds better, or it's more fun, or, you know, you get to have your collection there, or, you know, even yeah. aesthetically, you know, on the shelf and, and, and that kind of thing. When people actually do it and they come back to the store to buy more, are they just like completely new people? <laughs> They're like, oh, this is way better. Absolutely, yeah. You have so many are establishing relationships with our employees for more recommendations and looking for the old stuff that, you know, what, what classics do I have to have? What's, uh, what's the newest thing that I don't know about? Um, yeah, it's, it's easy to fall into that addiction for sure. I mean, I remember growing up and, and people, there was almost a competition among, among people to get better audio equipment to play the records on, the vinyls on. Right. Uh, is that happening again? I mean, can you get really good uh, equipment? Is there a great competition from companies to now turn out really first-rate uh I don't know, what do you call them? I guess audio equipment, record players, sounds too old-fashioned. Yeah, the, the I mean, turntables seems to be the uh, current vernacular. Turntable, but okay. The, uh, there are definitely some audiophile quality turntables and more of them on the market. Uh, but one of the, the great things about how technology has advanced is that you can, even with a cheaper record player, get a really good sound. And uh, it's easier now with Bluetooth speakers and uh, just to, to make the whole experience more convenient and compatible with kind of younger generations expectations of of the convenience of it but also realizing kind of a full sound and experience so uh, i think it, we've seen that everything kind of push in the right direction in that regard can someone literally just come in and say help i don't know how to hook up a turntable i don't know where to get started <laughs> but i want to do this <laughs> Yes, we sell turntables and speakers, and uh, we can we can send you out the door. You can set us up, ready, yeah, with ready to go well, to be a, a full-on collector. I, I actually have a, a, a sort of a, a, a side question to what you just asked, Mike. I mean, you know, depending on the age of the person coming in, has anyone ever come in to say, how do you actually get music out of this thing? Yeah, we 
we spend a little time uh, kind of educating people on the science. I mean, it's such a, a fascinating process as it is. So, uh, yeah, talking about that. I don't know that even explaining it makes <laughs> My dad gave me this sense. thing. What do I do with it? Yeah. Yeah. Our yeah. uh, CD, I read somewhere that CDs were actually selling again. Are CDs selling again? Yeah, I mean, for us, CDs never stop selling, um, but we have uh, seen a little bit of a resurgence in CD sales, partly because the prices have come down and, and the convenience uh, and of owning CDs and having a large CD collection with a budget. Uh, it's really there, and it's a great format, and it sounds great. You know, the conveniences of CDs are, are pretty obvious. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in five years we're having a call about the resurgence of the CD and uh, how everybody's coming back for CDs now. Jim, do you remember uh, what the turning point was? Because as you know, I, I mean, there were countless articles, uh, you know, years ago about the death of, of vinyl. What was the turning point for this resurrection? Well, it seems to have happened. I mean, it's been a very gradual rebound, but industry-wide, uh, it's a little bit different than our experience. Our experience, we've been selling tons of vinyl for ages. We've been the place to go to for records for people that still want to buy records and feed their record player and the, you know, the collectors. But with the, uh, the resurgence of real new buyers coming in is about five years, five, six years old. We started seeing this uptick. And, and honestly, I think that the easiest thing to equate it to is people burning out on streaming and digital experiences and realizing that they're missing out on a lot of uh, what a listening experience and a relationship with the artist is, is supposed to be like. Jim Henderson, co-owner of Amoeba in Hollywood. Jim, thanks.